Now, it's not uncommon over the summer period to do either a, a topical series, um, which we will officially commence a topical series um, next week. I did say that uh, we'll be looking at some of the precious promises of God, particularly um, positive and hopeful pr- promises. Uh, as we went through Revelation last year, there was a fair bit of doom and gloom amongst it, so it would be nice to uh, also look at some of the more positive aspects of what we have available in Christ. However, this morning's sermon is not specifically part of that. It's part two of a sermon which we preached uh, last year in October, and it's kind of born out of some of the questions that, that it raised. So it's not specifically a sermon on Romans 9 to 21, but it's probably the best chosen passage that fits into what we're looking at this morning. So let's open up in prayer as we uh, seek God and his guidance through his word. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who speaks, that you speak to us uh, through your written word, you speak to us through your living word who uh, was in this world a couple of thousand years ago. Thank you that you continue to make clear to us uh, the importance, the challenge and the conviction from your word by your Holy Spirit which dwells within us. Thank you that your word is living and active and we pray that it might be living and active amongst us this morning to provide us comfort where comfort is needed, to provide us with correction where correction is needed, provide healing where healing is needed. Uh, Lord, may your word achieve the very things for which you sent it this morning amongst your people to make us more like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Now we all make mistakes. Some of them are bigger than others. Some of them have longer implications than others. Sometimes those with lengthy implications are because they're really serious. Sometimes we remember the implications of particular actions just because they're funny or they were silly. One of the ones I always find tremendously humorous are people who get tattoos with mistakes. Here's just a couple of examples that I found. One's got, if you can't read them from where you sit, one's got, only God can fudge me. So it's supposed to be a J, but the little line through it makes it now say fudge me. Belief makes things real, but belief is spelled B-E-L-I-F-E. And then that great musical quote from the great John Bovey, it's is my life. Now, wouldn't you be proud to have one of those? Now, people might get over the fact that you've got a tattoo, but for the rest of your life, people are going to point and giggle and say, look what that says. What an idiot. But the extent to which that's going to affect you is going to come down to how you deal with it, how you respond to it. Now, back in October last year, we preached a message called The End of Shame. And the focus of that message was, how do we, as Christians, deal with the guilt and shame of things that have happened, either that we have done or have happened to us in our past? Now, for personal reasons, that particular sermon wasn't put publicly on the website, um, but if you'd like If you missed it and you'd like to hear it, I can certainly give you the link to access that one. But just as a reminder, what we were talking about when we were talking about shame, these two dictionary definitions were a feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behaviour, or from the Merriam-Webster's, 
a painful emotion caused by conscious guilt, shortcoming or impropriety. And if you haven't heard the message and think, oh, no, do I need to hear that beforehand? The heart of the message is Jesus has come and has dealt in its entirety with your guilt and shame. That we no longer need to bear our guilt and shame for our past actions because he has. It was both the celebration of what Jesus has done and at the same time it was a letting go for those of us who are still holding on to or carrying things that we didn't need to carry any longer. It was a sermon, as those who were here know, was very personal to me. It was also personal to a number that I spoke to. But as with the nature, when you deal with something sensitive like that, you can't deal with every possible scenario or every single question. But through conversations with a number of you, this is where this sermon has come from. So if the first sermon was kind of like how God has dealt with our personal guilt and shame, I suppose today's sermon is probably focusing more upon what are the, how do we deal with the ongoing consequences in this life of these actions that we've done and the damage that it's done to other relationships as well. So here's where we're heading this morning. We're looking at our sin and ourselves, our sin and others, and other people's sins and us. Now, from my perspective, it's quite a relief to say this is going to be an easier sermon for me to deliver than the other one was. But this is still going to touch on some pretty personal and nervy things. It'd be difficult for many of you to hear. But I hope we hear the comfort that is offered in Christ in the middle of it. But firstly, as we look at our sin and ourselves... We've already highlighted every bit of our guilt and shame. Jesus Christ has borne that and taken that on our behalf on the cross. But even though we're forgiven fully and freely, our guilt and shame is taken away, we may still have consequences. A number of our actions, even though forgiven, still continue to have ramifications, consequences in this life. To give you a kind of an extreme example, if someone was a murderer and they come to Christ, they know the same full extent of God's grace and love as you and I do, the same extent of his forgiveness. But even though they're forgiven, even though they're right in the eyes of God, they're declared right in his sight and will have an eternity with him, they still have consequences. They still have the exact same prison time, the exact same criminal record. It still affects the exact same families that were involved and the person, people whose lives are lost don't come back to life. Now you might think, Steve, that's a bit of a dumb example to give because I'm pretty sure that doesn't directly apply to someone in this room. And even if it did, it's a reminder that God's grace knows no limits. I think sometimes we think they're silly examples But when we say those things are silly examples, we kind of are presuming that God doesn't or God couldn't or God wouldn't save and forgive someone like that. The grace of God knows no bounds. Someone who intentionally lit a fire that burnt your house down, God can forgive fully and freely. But again, there would be ongoing consequences. And it doesn't have to be something as major as that to have ongoing consequences. Imagine anything you do, if it achieves a criminal record, 
it's going to have implications in this life. It may affect your employment. It may affect your ability to travel to certain countries or to travel at all. It may prevent you from able to work in the area of which you have been personally trained. It might even prevent you from being able to volunteer in certain capacities, particularly if it's to do something with children. Or even if you were to do something that you lose your licence, it affects your ability to travel to work, to take your children places, to do things like that. And some people might look upon these things and think, well, if God's forgiven me, why should there be any consequences? Surely he's the only one that matters. Some might even go so far as to say, I've been hard done by. It's not fair. I think we need to take responsibilities that sometimes we do things wrong and there are consequences for it. It was our actions, our actions that we may have chose to have done. A right response would be to humbly accept that, yeah, I did something wrong. And I knew and I know there are consequences. But not only that, in the middle of that, to praise God that he has not given us the full extent of what we deserve. He has saved us from the full extent of what we deserve. One example, I think, is a great picture of both the understanding, the magnitude and the consequences, but also the joy of salvation is the thief on the cross. From Luke chapter 23, one of the criminals who were hanged railed against him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Here is someone who recognises his only hope of a saviour is Jesus. But at the same time he says, we are getting what we deserve. He acknowledges the consequences are fitting. But you don't have to specifically do something criminal for it to have ongoing effects. Lots of different things that we do in life have ongoing, even lifetime consequences or ramifications. And pretty much all of them are hard, uncomfortable, at the most minor scales at least very frustrating, but you know the ones I think are the hardest? Are the ones that have implications with people. Particularly people who we're close to. That we love. That are family and friends. We're talking about our sin and others. I think one of the most amazing things in that initial message was that God's grace is full and free to all who would turn to him in repentance and faith. Even the world's most wicked person, most evil person who has ever lived, when they turn to Christ, can celebrate that wonderful promise in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Can you imagine that? that someone, the most horrific person you can imagine, turns to Christ, knows the same full extent of forgiveness that you and I experience, and can say, 
if I've confessed my sins, he forgives me and cleanses me from all unrighteousness. Sometimes I think because God's grace is so beyond what we're used to, we find it hard to comprehend. But I can tell you one thing. You can bank on 100% God's promise that if you confess your sin, he will forgive and cleanse you. That all in Christ will not receive condemnation. You can bank on God's promises. But on the other hand, I can't provide you any guarantees about how other people will respond. There's no guarantees. I'm sure in this room there are many people who have experienced either short term or still going on or maybe for the rest of their life damage to relationships of people they know dearly as a result of a decision you made that you now regret. Now you might have even had genuine remorse for that thing. You might even hate that thing to the same extent to which this other person thinks about it now. And you've come to those person, you have begged for them, say, I apologise, I'm sorry, I want you to forgive me. And their response is simply, I cannot forgive you. That's got to be tough to hear, doesn't it? That someone who is really close to you, that your actions, they say, I cannot forgive you. They've decided, now I've seen your true colours, I'm going to define your entire character based on that one thing that you've done, or maybe a number of things that you've done. Let's not pretend that's not going to hurt. That someone close to you, lose a friend, that's hard enough. But imagine someone that you value and you cherish deeply, not only separates from their friendship with you, but speaks of you and describes you by determined by a decision that you even regret. If you're the person in that situation, I can tell you there are two things that are longing in your heart. You want that friendship to be restored. No one likes to see a a close friendship get damaged like that. But not only do you want that, that friendship restored, you deeply long for that person to believe that your character is something so much more than what they currently think of you. Now for some, that may become a reality over time. Relationships may be restored, those things get put behind, forgiveness happens fully and freely, particularly over time as trust is built up again. But the sad reality is you can't guarantee that. For some people, in some situations, that will never come to pass. I can't imagine how much it would hurt because I've never been in that situation that someone dear and close to me has separated from me and is tarred my whole character based on something foolish that I've done. But I know what it's like inside of me and I know it's inside of all of us. The first thing we want to do is we want to defend ourselves. We want that person to be proven wrong that I'm very different than what they say. I think sometimes we try too hard to restore the friendship. We want so much for it to be fixed. We want so much for things to be restored because this is hurting me. It's hurting them also. And sometimes we try so hard that we're not willing to give them the space they need to grieve 
to heal, to forgive. And sadly, sometimes I think it can come more about me and my hurt than it is about loving our neighbour, wanting their good, wanting their hurts to be healed. Genuine love in our passage that we had read beforehand was described this way, to love one another with brotherly affection, to outdo one another in showing honour. It doesn't say certain people. Outdo one another without limitation in showing honour. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation and be constant in prayer. We sometimes we just want to bring the definitive proof so the person will change their mind and say, it's okay, I forgive you, I'm not going to hold this against you anymore. But usually no amount of good debate, putting forward a good case is going to win over your friend. It's usually your character which will win the person over. This genuine love is described as being patient in tribulation. Being patient, being humble to accept that I have hurt people. And they are hurting. But also being constant in prayer. I love that verse in the Bible where it says, God moves the hearts of kings just like streams of water wherever he will. God can change people. And we depend upon him in prayer because we know only him can change these things. But as we come before him, we depend upon him in prayer. We need to say, God... Help me to be patient with that person. Even though we feel like we're the victim because they don't forgive us, they don't like us anymore, help me to be patient with them. Help me to be gracious with them, knowing that my actions hurt them. In the past, I wanted to be a friend who did what was best for them. And if you're a genuine friend, you still desire what is best for them. God, help me to bless them in the middle of this. God, let this be an opportunity for your glory to show something of your character through this situation. May they see the character of Christ formed in me, in my life, through this setting. And we see something of the character of Christ in that type of setting. Peter writes about it. For to you this has been called... Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And he didn't do anything wrong to hurt people. And when things are done against him, he didn't revile. He didn't retaliate. He simply entrusted the situation to God who judges justly. Or in other words, who judges fairly. When you're in that situation, you lost a friend, they don't forgive you, pray for them. Pray for their comfort. Pray that they might experience God's healing and blessing. And not just for your benefit, but genuinely for their benefit. Pray that they would see more of Jesus and his beauty through the situation. 
and patiently entrust it in prayer. Say, God, not my will, your will will be done. I'd love to say it's always God's will for it all to be restored and everything to be sweet and better, but it may not be. We don't know that. We say, God, you're good. You do what is best for me and for that other person. So often my desired outcome is very different than God's desired outcome. Now we've spoken quite a bit about our past actions and the effects on ourselves and others. But shame doesn't only apply to things that we've done, does it? Sometimes the guilt and shame that we bear is because of something that someone's done to us. And we didn't really touch on that much at all in the first message. What about other people's sin and us? Well, for them, there's implications both their relationship with you and their relationship with God. Where they stand with God is between them and God. That's outside of your control. But it should be your prayer that they would come to know the same grace and forgiveness that you enjoy. But something that is within your control and that we desperately need God's help is how you respond. How you react, how do you deal with those people? A few weeks back, Alon preached an excellent message on loving your enemies. If you didn't hear that one, I would suggest you go back and have a listen. But when it comes to dealing with those people, I'm not going to dumb down and pretend like, oh, this is easy. This is just like two Panadol and a lie down and everything's sweet and everything's better. It's hard. It's painful. When we were thinking about when we've done wrong and people separate from us and they don't forgive us, we've, we've acknowledged that hurts. Guess what? When the tables are turned and you're the victim, if they have generally regret what they've done, it hurts them too. When we choose not to forgive, when we choose to cut ourselves off completely from them. It's just as hard for them to forgive us as it is for us to forgive them. I know that just seems like common sense, but I think sometimes we need to hear that because we've got a pretty high opinion of ourselves. We think, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm worth forgiving. I'm a nice guy. It's so much easier to want to be forgiven than it is to do forgiving, isn't it? I can't imagine anyone who doesn't want to be forgiven But I imagine there's quite a few of us, myself included, who sometimes find it hard to forgive. And the right response, I'm not going to tell you it's easy. I'm not going to tell you it's without pain and hurt. Because I'd be lying to you if I said it was. To follow Jesus often is uncomfortable. Remember what Jesus says? Anyone who would wish to follow me must take up his cross Deny himself and follow me. Jesus says, essential part of daily following him will mean that you will need to deny things that you personally desire to do. The Bible calls that the flesh sometimes or our sin nature. When someone innocent has been hurt in some way, physically, sexually, emotionally, verbally, anyway, 
for most people, the natural response is not a good and godly one. It's the type of thing that we probably should deny. If I'm completely honest, sometimes if something happens to me, my first response in my head is not a good one. It's not, God, I want to see that person blessed abundantly. There's part of me that initially says they want it, they should pay for that. But I'm thankful that God has got a very quick acting Holy Spirit says, nah, that's not right. That's not what I've called you to. That's not what I've, I've equipped you for by my Spirit. And he points me in the right direction. In our reading, Paul puts it this way. He says, repay no one evil for evil. The no one means no one. No matter what they've done. But give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all, including the person who might have done something to you. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge for yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It says, never is it our job to pay someone back for the hurt that they have given us. Despite the fact that that's one of our first inclinations at times. And when I was thinking about this throughout the week, I thought to myself, why? What is the mindset that makes us think, why do we desire revenge? And the conclusion that I came to is this, that there is something in our head that says that if I don't do something, this person is going to get away with it or no one's ever going to deal, bring perfect justice to this situation. Remember what we saw from the reading from First Peter, when it talks about Jesus, he didn't retaliate, but he, but he left it to the God who judges justly and fairly. It's part of his character. He's perfectly just. That's why Paul says, don't repay. God will bring perfect, fair justice for everything. When we say, I need to do this, this person must pay, we're kind of, we're kind of doubting. It's like, I don't think God's going to do this fairness. Maybe God's not able to. Maybe not, God's not going to. Or maybe he's not going to do enough. It's, that's an assault of his character, really. That's questioning his very character to be a perfect and just God. We should want to be, see them forgiven freely just like we were forgiven freely. Not easy. Praying for your enemies. Loving them. Seeking their blessing? That's tough. It's never going to be easy. Now, I don't know the situations of everybody in this room, but I guarantee for some people, as you hear that, it's going to sound near impossible. No way could I do that. Steve, if you knew what this person had done, do you believe it's possible for God to forgive them? Do I'm very persuaded that there's no one who is outside the boundaries of God's potential to forgive. Do you believe God's Holy Spirit dwells within you? Do you think he could give you the capacity to forgive? Here's one thing I've only really started to ponder throughout this week. And it's probably a bit slow on the uptake and you think, wow, it took you this long. 
The same Holy Spirit that inspired every word in the Scriptures, that sometimes we read things and we think, that's calling me to something hard, is the same Holy Spirit which indwells you and I and who gives us the ability to carry them out. It's worth remembering that. When you read through something, you think, oh, I can't do that. That's tough. Think, the same Holy Spirit that inspired these words lives within me. He's not going to call me to do something he's not willing to equip me to do. Now, I know we have a flesh nature that's going to fight that to the end. I often find that the way I pray when I read through things like this, I'm just like, I can't. That's hard. But your spirit's within me. You can We're called to be a forgiving people. And then I'm going to say, but. Now when I say, but, I'm not going to say there are some people that we shouldn't forgive. I say, forgive freely. But I'm going to talk a bit more about what forgiveness might look like. To forgive someone doesn't necessarily mean that you want to subject yourself to being hurt over and over and over again. That's not a requirement of forgiveness. Often in an abusive situation, they'll be really manipulative. They might say, well, you say that you forgive me, but if you really forgive me, you'd you'd, you'd come back here and we'd, we'd be hanging out all over again and same things would happen over and over again. You don't have to prove yourself in that sense. Forgiveness is a state of the heart to say, this past action, I'm not going to hold that against you anymore. Now, here's a thought that I've had throughout the week, and this may be Steve's thought, so do with it what you like. Now, it often gets said the primary reason not to put yourself back in a position of harm is for your own safety. I think that's important, our personal safety. We should seek to avoid harm of all form. But I'm going to say I persuaded there is actually a higher priority even than that. I think the primary reason for not going back in that situation is an expression of our call to love our enemies. If we love our enemies, we want God's blessing. We want them to thrive in God. And because we want them to thrive in God, part of our love would would not want to put them in a situation where they might be tempted to sin again. That's only a thought I've had in this last week, so if I'm way off track, just let it go past you. And I'm certainly not saying, saying that your personal safety is not important. I'm saying this will result in your personal safety. But it's a motive which comes not just from your own personal gain, but it's a motive that feeds out of your love for your enemy, not wanting them to be put in a position where they would be tempted to sin again because we want them to thrive in God. Now, that doesn't mean that Avoiding a particular person necessarily means that you're loving them in that way. You could do that with all sorts of bad motives. You might just hate their guts and not want to be near them. What I'm talking about is a love for them that wants to see them restored. A love that wants to see them change. A love that actually not only doesn't want to put that temptation before them again, but is actively praying that God would change and heal that part of their life. But certainly forgiveness is the hard bit because it kind of goes against our nature. There's something within us that thinks justice needs to happen. 
And I'll put it to you that God has given us that sense of justice. Except for it's not our job to take it. It's given us that sense of justice because he is the one who judges with justice and fairness and to leave it to him. So moving forward. Now first I want to say, again, this is going to raise questions that I haven't been able to specifically address. Um, if you have particular questions about particular situations, happy to chat any time. But I do want to make a point from every single one of the three sections. Our sin and ourselves, our sin and others, and other people's sins, and us. Firstly, our sin and ourselves. I'm going to say, it's not fair. When there's ongoing consequences, that's the first thing people say, it's not fair. And you're right, it's not fair. Well, actually, it is fair that there are ongoing implications What's not fair is that you don't get the full extent of the consequences that we deserve. These are minor consequences compared to the grand forgiveness and blessings in Christ that we gain when we turn to him. I don't deserve all the rich blessings I have in Jesus. You don't deserve the rich blessings you have in Jesus. Yet the one whom we offended adopts us as his own, loves us as though he does his own son. We need to say, God, help me to be humble. Help me to accept that I've hurt someone. There may be consequences, but I thank you for the wonderful riches that I have in you and thank you that you have saved and rescued me from the full extent of my consequences. So moving forward, taking our eyes off the temporal loss and having our eyes and our thanks upon the eternal gain. What about our sin and others? I'll say words can either build you up or tear you down. You'd be surprised how much we are affected by what other people around us say or think about us. But do you want to know something? Your value is not defined by what another person says or thinks about you. Because trust me, if you live like that on a day-to-day basis, one day you're going to be at the top of the world, the next day you're going to be in the bottom of the pit. It's going to be all over the shop. Now, I recognise words are important. Like James says, now out of the same mouth can come blessing and curses. We need to be building one another up rather than tearing one another down. Or if you're inclined by Gary Chapman's five love languages things, one of those love languages, people feel loved by the words that people say about them. If that's a priority, that's how you feel loved, you'll probably be more upset and hurt by negative things said against you. But the extent to which things affect you deep down will come down to who you listen to. We are naturally inclined to think more highly of things that are said by people we value more. Which reminds us, as we speak to one another, we need to be careful how we speak to one another. But who higher should we value the opinion of than God? The almighty God who valued us enough that he sent his son into the world to bear a cruel death to set us free from the consequences of our sin. This is the God who has seen every single thing that you've done that even your closest friends don't know every single thought you've ever had, every single thing you will do in the future. And he set his love and affection upon you in Christ. 
He is with you. He dwells within you. He's working with you. He is your good shepherd caring for you. Now, that doesn't mean you don't listen to anyone at all. I need to listen to criticism or things that come back because they may very well be God's means are used to expose something that's not right in my life. But we don't need to be dragged down by someone's made-up malicious slander. We have an advocate at the Father's side who's daily pleading our case, who's abundantly beyond all other human voices that might come before us. So moving forward with that one, stop getting your worth by what other people say, but remember what God has said of you. And lastly, other people sin in us, love their socks off. Now we've seen that when we do wrong to others, it hurts us when they disconnect and they won't forgive us. It's not easy when we need to do the forgiving. Because deep down we think they don't deserve it. And they don't. And because they don't, it's easy to justify our bitterness and resentment. But one of our key purposes in life is to glorify God in all things. That means to make his character known, to reveal something of our God's character. Who is this God who we are to glorify? Well, it's the same one who sent his son into the world to die on a cross to rescue people who were not deserving from the consequences of their actions and to bless them abundantly and eternally. When you think about it, we're reluctant to forgive someone who opposes for three months, six months, maybe a year. I opposed God. I cursed God for 20 years. And when I came to him and called upon him in faith, he didn't say, Steve, that was 20 years. It's going to take me at least another 20 to get over that. His forgiveness came full and free. We need to forgive freely, not because it comes natural or easy to us, because God calls us to and God, by his spirit, strengthens us to be able to. That we can pray for someone who's even done something horrific to us. And we might not ever, for our own safety and for their blessing, to keep them away from the curse of sin. But we should be praying that God would bless them. That they would grow, that they would thrive in Jesus. So our moving forward in this one, that we need to move on, stop dwelling in bitterness and resentment. It doesn't hurt the other person at all, it only hurts you. Start to forgive in the way in which we have been forgiven, to love and to bless. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, it's foolish sometimes how much we presume that you should forgive us. Yet, to even ponder 20 years of intentional rebellion against you, Yet you didn't have a list of things to, to get things over the line. Lord, we thank you that your grace is full and free. Lord, we thank you that you can work in the hearts of even the most wicked and evil of people. We thank you for the stories where we've seen restoration and reconciliation. 
But Lord, we also pray for your peace and comfort knowing that that's not always the case. Sometimes things will hurt till the day we see you face to face. Give us patience, give us grace, give us love that we might make you known to those around us and that we might appreciate more of who you are and what you have done for us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I said next week we're starting a series on uh, promises of God. Um, The theme next week is I will never leave you nor forsake you. We're going to move into a time of communion. A time which symbolises in a physical sense